0: You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee.
1: And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's November 3rd.
0: Israeli ground forces advanced into the Gaza Strip last Friday night. As the battle continues in the weeks and months ahead, Israel and Hamas will be fighting street by street, building by building, clashing in brutal urban combat. But the war isn't just about battlefield tactics, say Rand's Todd Helmus and William Marcelino. It's also about perception, telling a story about who is the victim and who is the aggressor. This means that lies, mistruths, and disinformation will be a key part of the fight. Israel and Hamas will both release information that is to their advantage. Spokespeople for Israel Defense Forces will highlight Hamas's use of human shields and the care Israel takes in striking targets. Meanwhile, Hamas will play up the civilian toll in Gaza, and both sides will release reams of supporting footage. Outside Gaza, throngs of people across the world will be eager to cheer the cause for whichever side of the conflict they support, and, on social media, create, like, and share content accordingly. The recent explosion at a hospital in Gaza City, which killed hundreds of people, shows how this information war has already played out. After the bombing, Hamas quickly blamed Israel, and the Israelis quickly blamed Hamas. Israel even released a video, later discredited, purporting to show proof of Hamas' involvement. False assertions spread online from supporters on both sides. And it's worth noting now that evidence suggests the hospital explosion was the result of a failed Palestinian rocket. So what can be done to cut through the mistruths and collect cold, hard facts. It's important that those watching on the sidelines find trusted sources, corroborate information where possible, be suspicious of emotionally-laden content or overly dramatic headlines, and take a pause before sharing content. And as for Israel and Hamas, both sides of this fight should know that false accusations and inaccuracies will only undercut their cause. Our experts emphasize that the stakes for combating the spread of false information could not be higher. Quote, Though truth is the first casualty of war, it is still the best weapon, they say. The mistakes, lies, and false accusations will only grow and will surely obscure the true cost of this war. The success of the Israeli operation and the fate of Palestinian civilians could hang in the balance.
1: It's not just supporters and bystanders who are taking in information about the Israel-Hamas war. World leaders are, of course, following the conflict closely. That includes leaders of pariah states like North Korea. Last week, Rand's Bruce Bennett wrote about what Kim Jong-un might be taking away from Hamas's heinous attacks against Israel, and the fighting in Gaza that followed would Kim consider launching a Hamas-style attack on South Korea? According to Bennett, Kim is unlikely to replicate the overall Hamas strategy. He knows that if he did and killed hundreds of South Koreans, he would justify a South Korean military response and become South Korea's number one military target and while south korea and its ally the us may not always know kim's location they likely know his location some of the time and have the weapons to launch a precise strike if he ever pushes them to do so quote because his personal survival is his number one priority kim is extremely unlikely to attack south korea in a way that puts his survival seriously at risk so while kim may not resort to a hamas style attack he does share Hamas's goal of cultivating U.S. reluctance to intervene militarily in his neighborhood. Thus, it's expected that his regime will continue or even escalate its lower-level provocations, such as missile launches, as well as limited attacks his regime can plausibly deny, like the sinking of a South Korean warship in 2010. Kim has learned that these actions can demonstrate his power while avoiding serious South Korean and U.S. responses, Bennett says, at least for now.
0: Last week, there was yet another mass shooting in the U.S. On October 25th, a gunman opened fire in a bowling alley and a bar in Lewiston, Maine, killing 18 people and injuring 13 others. It was the deadliest shooting in the country this year. Now is a good time to revisit the analyses conducted through the RAND Gun Policy in America Initiative. Since 2018, our researchers have been seeking to better understand the country's enduring problem with gun violence. They've reviewed thousands of studies to learn what scientific evidence says and doesn't say about the effects of gun policies. One of those RAND researchers, Rosanna Smart, was quoted in Time magazine last week about the Lewiston shooting. She noted that while there's limited evidence to show which laws prevent mass shootings specifically, bans on high-capacity magazines appear to reduce the number of deaths in mass shootings. Beyond addressing last week's horrifying events, Smart noted that reducing overall gun deaths in the United States will require efforts that prevent firearm suicides. Smart also recently appeared in a Rand explainer video on this topic. She highlighted which gun policies are supported by evidence, discussed what created the current evidence gap that she and her colleagues are striving to fill, and, crucially, warned that the absence of evidence that a policy will work is not the same thing as the existence of evidence that the policy won't work. Quote Policymakers who want to address gun violence may need to rely on logic or weaker evidence until the science and data catches up, she said. You can check out Rosanna Smart's video on Rand's Instagram, and you'll find our many studies about the effects of firearm laws at rand.org/gunpolicy.
1: The supply and possession of cannabis for non-medical use is legal in many jurisdictions around the world. In many U.S. states and Canadian provinces, for-profit companies are allowed to produce and sell cannabis to adults. But there are alternatives to this profit-maximizing model. A Rand Europe report published this week explores some of those options. For example, jurisdictions in Spain and Uruguay have implemented cannabis social clubs. These clubs are legally constituted nonprofit associations that cultivate cannabis plants for their adult members' personal consumption. With this model, clubs are allowed to cultivate and distribute cannabis among a group of registered users, and their supply is typically restricted to members only. In addition to access restrictions, cannabis social clubs usually have to be registered with the government or an oversight body. They typically also have to follow guidelines related to the types and amounts of cannabis products that they can produce and sell, as well as storage, packaging, and labeling requirements. Another model is government sales. Throughout history, governments have maintained monopoly control over the supply of certain intoxicants for example, British control of the opium trade between India and China. Today, while very few jurisdictions have adopted a government monopoly model, parts of Canada and Uruguay demonstrate that it is possible to implement some versions of a government sales model for cannabis. In most Canadian provinces and territories, there are government-operated cannabis stores, private license stores, or a combination of both. In Uruguay, Pharmacies sell cannabis under close government oversight. Though the government does not directly supply the substance through government stores, it does set the retail price, determine what products can be sold, and determine where the product can be sold. And a central body determines who can cultivate for the market and how much they can produce. In fact, Uruguay's model even goes further than many monopoly models, since it limits how much cannabis someone can purchase on a weekly and monthly basis. These examples show how some middle-ground regulatory approaches, somewhere between total prohibition of cannabis and a profit-maximizing commercial model, have been applied around the globe. Insights about how these models are used and their outcomes are valuable to jurisdictions interested in removing the prohibition on cannabis supply.
0: That's it for today's episode. You can learn more about the topics we discussed in the show notes at rand.org podcast. We'll be back next week with a special Veterans Day episode. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis.